Amen. Thanks, Fred. Thanks, Debbie. This morning, we're going to be in John chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. So if you have a copy of God's Word, please open up there. John 21, verses 1 through 19. Just to give you a little bit of context, what's going on here. John chapter 20, uh, this is uh, at the very end of John's gospel narrative. John chapter 20 takes place after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he appears in the upper room to his disciples who were there uh, meeting to pray. They were locked in a room, afraid. And Jesus appears miraculously and he shows them his hands and his side. A reminder for us that when Jesus uh, was resurrected, it was with a physical body. The same body he possesses now and forevermore. He didn't come back as some kind of a ghost with no body. Jesus came back with a physical body bearing the scars of redemption. And John tells us that seeing him made made the disciples glad and overjoyed. But there was one disciple that wasn't there, and it was Thomas. And so when Thomas returned, they told him that they had seen the Lord, and he refused to believe them. And in fact, he said that he would not believe unless he could place his hands in Jesus' nail-pierced hands and feet and his side. Eight days later, Jesus shows up and invites Thomas to do exactly that. This is the second time that he appeared to his disciples. And when Thomas got to see Jesus and he touched him, he declared, My Lord and my God. Today we're going to see Jesus appear to his disciples again, and especially to Peter. So John chapter 21 will be in verses 1 through 19, and we've started, I understand, uh, standing for the reading of God's Word. So if you would stand with me, John 21, 1 through 19. It says, After this... Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. He said to them, Cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that being John, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment For he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you had just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now one of the disciples dared ask him, or sorry, now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so would the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, 
Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show him by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. We're going to try something else this morning. I'm going to say the grass withers and the flower fades. And I want you to respond with, but the word of our God will stand forever. So let's try that. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. I did so good. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord and ask his help in understanding and applying it this morning. Lord Jesus, as we come to a passage that um, may be familiar to us, it may not be. I pray that you would help us to see ourselves in Peter and these other disciples and that you would surprise us again by your grace this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we all know the painful sting of betrayal. We learn at an early age that not everyone who calls themselves a friend really is one. Not everyone who claims to have our best interests at heart really does. And not everyone can be trusted to the same degree. And we've had those moments, all of us have, where we really needed a friend. We needed someone to be there. And the person that we were counting on just bails. Isn't there in our moment of need. And those memories stick with us. They can be tough to forgive. And I want you to know this morning that Jesus actually knows that pain all too well. When Jesus began his public ministry, he began by going and hand-selecting 12 men that would have never been chosen by any other rabbi to be their followers, their disciples. He traveled with them. He taught them. He healed their family members. He corrected them. He delegated authority to them. He laughed with them, cried with them, prayed with them. One of these friends ratted him out for money took religious leaders to the very spot where Jesus had met with them countless times for prayer and discipleship. And he so facilitated the arrest and subsequent death of his friend. Then as Jesus is being falsely accused and all signs are pointing towards an unjustified crucifixion, these other disciples scattered. And Peter, bold, confident, loud Peter, Even though Jesus had warned him that this would happen, he denied even knowing Jesus three times. In his moment of greatest need, these disciples had an opportunity to return the love that they had received from Jesus to show him the fidelity and steadfastness that he had shown for them, and they bailed. They betrayed him. I want you to put yourself in Jesus' place for a minute. How would you respond to these disciples the next time you saw them? How would you respond to these friends the next time you laid eyes on them? Would you want revenge? Would you 
want to wall up and put your defenses up so you'd never be hurt like that again by them? Would you berate them and shame them for being fake friends? How would you respond? What we're going to see today and what we've already seen in the passage is that that's actually not at all how Jesus responds to his betrayers. Rather than abandon them, Jesus actually moves towards them. Rather than leave them in their shame, he frees them from it by his grace and his love. And that's what Jesus is doing here when he has breakfast with his betrayers. So three things we're going to see Jesus do for his disciples and plot plot spoiler here for us as well. Jesus, his love pursues the disciples, his love restores the disciples, and his love transforms his disciples. So first, the love of Jesus pursued them, verses 1 through 3. Back in John chapter 20, in the chapter right before this, Jesus appeared to them the first time, and when he appeared in that upper room, he begins by saying, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So the very first time the disciples saw Jesus after his resurrection, he gives them a renewed commission. They were being sent out to carry the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And for those who believed, their sins would be forgiven. And for those who rejected the message, they would remain dead in their sin. And this is what Jesus is tasking them with. He was letting them know that their ministry wasn't winding down on that side of the cross. It was actually just beginning. This was their purpose now, was to be a messenger of his gospel. Now fast forward to today's passage, probably less than two weeks from when Jesus gave them that renewed charge. Where do we find them? Not in the city, sharing the gospel. But we find them on the Sea of Tiberias, some 70 miles north of Jerusalem. And we're not explicitly told why. Maybe they were just fishing, right? They had to make a living, so maybe they were just fishing, just doing their job. Maybe they were being disobedient. Some people speculate that maybe they were getting out of ministry altogether. That they had had enough. They had been too wounded and they were done. They were throwing in the towel. And those interpretations are entirely possible. John doesn't really tell us, but I do think he's giving us a hint. I think that John is actually picking up on this theme of the disciples' repeated failure. The language of them going out at night is the same language that John used to describe Judas going out to betray Jesus. I think what we're seeing here is another example of the disciples running from their commission. They were being fickle friends again, not doing what Jesus had commanded them to do, but running. I wonder why that is. Why do we find them running again? I think we know. It's because failure's heavy. And the shame that our failure brings is really sticky. It has a way of clinging to us. And like Adam and Eve, when they felt shame, I believe they ran and hid, which is what we're all prone to do in our sin. And the thing is, is that their shame was justified. At no point does John say, or does any of Scripture say, that they shouldn't have felt this kind of shame for betraying Jesus. The Bible doesn't minimize their betrayal. But fortunately, their shame didn't get the last word because their good shepherd went looking for them. 
In Matthew 18, Jesus describes himself as a good shepherd who will gladly leave the 99 to go and look for the one lost sheep. And that's what Jesus is doing here for his disciples. Jesus shows us over and over again in Scripture that the heart of God is drawn not to people who pretend to have it together, but to the people who openly admit they don't have it together. To the very people that you think would have exhausted Jesus' patience, that's who he's most interested in going after. That's really good news for us. See, because we've betrayed Jesus time and time again as well. It's not just the disciples who are repeated failures. We betray Jesus with our anger, our self-absorption, our pride that makes us feel self-sufficient with our lies, with our lust, with our envy of other people and the blessings God has given them, and on and on and on the list goes. We betray Jesus by running back to the very things that he has saved us from. And we know by our experience that there is a gap that exists in all of us between where we want to be in our walk with God, where we want our affections to be for him, and where they actually are. And you may think that you have made such a colossal train wreck out of your life that you have sinned in such a way that your only option now is to hide from God and from his people. So you withdraw. Maybe not completely, maybe you still come to church, but you just kind of dabble around the edges of God's light, not actually drawing near in relationship to him and other people. But friends, I want you to see the posture of God demonstrated in Jesus here for you. I want you to see that your sin, my sin, our shame that it doesn't have the last word, and it also doesn't disqualify us from receiving God's grace. Actually, in God's economy, our sin and shame is actually the thing that qualifies us to receive God's grace and his love. Jesus pursued these disciples, and he pursues us. But he didn't just pursue the disciples. He restored them. John tells, the, John tells us that when Jesus appeared to his disciples, they had been fishing all night with no luck. And as day was breaking, he stood on the shore and called to them and said, Children, have you caught any fish? And when they told him that they had not, he told them to cast the net on the other side of the boat and they would find some. Now, they didn't know who Jesus was yet, but I want you to imagine that you've been out working all night long and some crazy stranger shows up on the shore telling you that your problem is that you're fishing on the wrong side of the boat. I'd be real tempted to tell him to go take a hike, okay? But the the thing is, this wasn't the first time they had gotten a message from shore to cast their net on the other side of the boat. So they didn't argue this time. They did what the stranger said. They threw their net on the other side of the boat. And this time they caught such a haul they couldn't even get it to the end of the boat. They had to just drag it to shore. And somehow the net didn't break. And at that point, John looks at Peter and says, it's the Lord. Peter realizes Jesus. He grabs his tunic, always doing the unorthodox thing, right? Peter puts on more clothes to jump into the ocean and swim to Jesus. And the rest of the disciples drag their catch back to shore. And what they all find when they're getting there is Jesus waiting with breakfast already prepared. Not needing their fish. Jesus already had breakfast prepared. He had a charcoal fire going with fish and bread. When Jesus is face-to-face again with the men that betrayed him, Jesus, even as they are being disobedient in this very moment, Jesus gives weary men 
breakfast. At every turn, the heart of Jesus does not operate like we expect. Verse 15, John tells us that after breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these other guys do? Back in Mark 14, when Jesus was preparing them for his death, he also prepared them for the fact that they would let him down. And I want you to hear Peter's response when Jesus tried to prepare him for this. Peter said to him, even though they all, these other guys, these other disciples, even though they all will fall away, I won't. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter, good old Peter, doubles down and says emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now here's Jesus, after Peter's colossal failure, asking him, Peter, do you still think you love me more than these other guys do? When he asks if he loves him, the word that Jesus uses for love is from that Greek word agape. It's a word that talks about the highest form of love, one that's marked by wholehearted devotion to God. And when Peter answers, but now humbled by his failure, he no longer compares himself to the other disciples. He doesn't say, oh yeah, I love you more than these other guys. What he says is, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But he uses a different word for love there. He uses the Greek word phileo. Uh, an affectionate love. Jesus says, Peter, do you have wholehearted devotion for me? And Peter says, Jesus, I have affection for you. You know that. Peter is totally stripped of his confidence in his love for Jesus. And so he uses a lesser form for that word love. Jesus' response is, tend my sheep. And then Jesus asks him a second time, and Peter answers the same way a second time. But the third time is where Jesus really presses in. The third time, he doesn't ask Peter if he has that higher, that agape love for him. Jesus stoops and uses Peter's word for love. He says, Peter, do you even have phileo love for me? Do you even have affection for me? So let's forget the highest devotion. Can you even say that you have just brotherly affection for me? Jesus is calling into question whether Peter even possesses a basic affection for him, and this grieves Peter. Peter tells him, Lord, you know all things. You see my heart, and you know that I love you. Then for a third time, Jesus tells him to feed his sheep. And what's happening here? I want to go and tell you what's happening here is that Jesus is actually rescuing Peter from his shame and restoring him to his original purpose. Think about the setting. Jesus has them on the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus first called Peter in Luke chapter 5 and told him that he would make him a fisher of men. They're sitting around a charcoal fire. Where was the last time we saw Peter sitting around a charcoal fire? He was denying that he even knew Jesus because he was terrified of a small little girl. Think about the questions that Jesus is asking. Peter denied Jesus three times, and now Jesus questions his love three times. Now, why would Jesus go out of his way to remind Peter so acutely of his failure? Is he just being cruel? Is he pouring salt into the wound? We know that's not the answer because that's not the way the heart of God works. He's not cruel. What Jesus is doing is he's pressing into Peter's shame 
Because grace always has to wound us before it can bind us up. Grace has to cut us before it can heal us. If you've ever had uh, someone that you know, or maybe you've had it done, you've had a skin cancer removed. You know, skin cancers, at least at their earliest stages, right, they don't look very bad. You have them on your arms or something, and it really doesn't look too bad. And you go to the doctor, the doctor tells you it's a skin cancer, and they tell you they're going to have to cut it out, right? So if you see somebody after a skin cancer removal, there's typically going to be a gaping wound covered by a big Band-Aid or something. And you might think initially, man, that looks a whole lot worse than it did before he went to the doctor. But we know that what has to happen is, right, the cancer, the thing that's actually causing the harm, has to be cut out. And initially, it's painful. But that's what allows for the healing. See, Peter's shame would have kept him on the run. But Jesus had a greater purpose for Peter. So Jesus had to get to the bottom of that shame and cut it out for Peter's own good. These disciples, including Peter, had already been recommissioned by Jesus in John 20, but they had to hear it again because shame is sticky. They had to hear it again. As one pastor said, shame has a way of getting into our bones and becoming a part of the way we view ourselves. When we sin, it has a way of just kind of ingraining itself in our self-conception, the way that we think about ourselves, so that when we think about us, we just can't get over the repeated failures of our past, maybe even the repeated failures of our present. And so we begin to identify by our sin. And there's part of that that may seem pious, that may seem like a righteous thing to do, but Jesus knows better. That's why forgiveness takes a long time to sink in. It takes hearing over and over and over again. And that's why Jesus is pressing in on this pocket of shame in Peter. He is, as uh, Elbert McGowan, a pastor at First Pres in Jackson, says this. That what Jesus is doing is he is beginning to lay new memories over Peter's memories of his failure. Jesus wants to make sure that when Peter walks away from this fire, the next time that he smells a charcoal fire, the first thing that comes to mind is not his failure. But Jesus is restoring grace. The next time he's out on the sea fishing, he doesn't want Peter thinking about the time that he failed to be the fisher of men that Jesus called him to be. He wants Peter to think about the grace of Jesus that restored him on the sea. Friends, this is what it looks like to come to Jesus. We don't want to sugarcoat things. When you come to Jesus, initially at salvation and then a million times after that till he takes us home to glory... This is what it looks like. He repeatedly presses into the places that we're most ashamed of and shows us that as deep as shame runs, his love goes deeper because grace has to wound us to bind us up. It has to empty us of the idea that we can be good enough. Then we're ready to be healed. Peter had sinned publicly, so Jesus restored him publicly to leave no doubt in the minds of the other disciples and in us That Jesus still had a purpose for Peter to carry the story of salvation to the nations. But the love of Jesus didn't even just stop there. Not only did Jesus pursue them, and not only did Jesus restore them, but Jesus also transforms them by his love and grace. Jesus tells Peter, verses 18 and 19, that when he was younger, he lived for himself. But when he's older... He will die fulfilling this commission from Jesus. Jesus is telling him that where there used to be a lack of resolve, 
there will now be newfound strength. Where there used to be a fair weather follower, he will now be faithful to the very end. John tells us that Jesus said this to tell him by what kind of death he would glorify God. And church history tells us that Peter, the same Peter who was terrified of a young girl, who denied Jesus three times while his master was being crucified in front of him, that same Jesus would later be arrested for taking this great commission out. And they were going to crucify him, and Peter objected and said that he wasn't worthy to die in the same manner as his Savior. And he asked to be crucified upside down. That's a transformed man. Because Peter had experienced the love of God for him at the deepest level and had seen Jesus go on to the cross and spread his arms out on that tree for him and his shame and his sin. And when Peter's heart grasped that, it transformed him. He now could no longer continue to live on the sidelines, no longer could shame have a hold on him because he had experienced a love that put him back together again, a love that refused to throw in the towel on him. And that love changed him to his core. After that, he couldn't settle to live for himself because seeing the love of God made him live to make much of God. And that became the overriding purpose of his life. And just to be clear, Peter wasn't transformed in a moment. Peter still failed miserably at times, one of which we actually have recorded for us by God's grace in Galatians. We see Paul go to Galatia and have to confront Peter for his hypocrisy. After this restoring that Jesus, after this restoring work that Jesus had done in his life, Jesus wasn't promising an overnight transformation, but what he was assuring Peter was that his love would have a steady, transforming effect on him over the decades. And by the, that by the time he went to the grave, he would be a different man than the one Jesus had first called. I want you to consider what this means for the Christian life. Because I, when I think about this, prayed about this earlier, that Jesus is showing Peter here that he is fully aware of the depth of Peter's failure. Jesus was aware of it before it happened. He was aware of it while it was happening. And Jesus had not forgotten when he came back from the dead. And he draws near to Peter, and it's that restoration, that acknowledgement that I see the worst parts of you, and I'm not going anywhere. That's actually the love that became the foundation for the rest of Peter's life. It actually allowed him to be transformed over the decades. And I think that's actually the difference between Peter and Judas. I've always been struck by this contrast between Peter and Judas. Judas, when he betrayed Jesus for money, and I, I have a charitable hypothesis about Judas's intentions. I think Judas was probably, uh, I think that he was really anxious for Jesus to assume the throne, to be the savior of Israel that he knew Jesus could be. And I think he may have gotten frustrated going around from small town to small town, avoiding the spotlight. And he just couldn't understand why Jesus was so hesitant to just step forward and take on this role that Judas just knew that he had come to fulfill. And there's part of me that wonders if Judas, when he went and betrayed Jesus for money, if there wasn't a way of trying to force Jesus' hand. Like if Jesus is arrested, then he'll have no choice but to show them who he really is. And instead, when Jesus is arrested, he goes quietly like a lamb to the slaughter, doesn't respond to his accusers, 
doesn't call down angels to take him off the cross. And I believe in that moment Judas knew that he had made a colossal mistake. And he goes and tries to take the money back. They wouldn't take it. And in that moment he despaired. And we're told that he goes out and he kills himself. He buys a field with the money that he had gotten for betraying Jesus. Goes out and buys a field and he hangs himself. Now... There are a number of reasons why anyone might commit suicide, and unfortunately it can be labeled as the unforgivable sin, and that is not biblical. None of the reasons anyone ever commits suicide are good, but it's also not the unpardonable sin. Judas goes and he kills himself out of despair, and that's the point. Judas, what's so tragic to to me about him, is that he couldn't see that in his mistake, the thing that he did in betraying Jesus, Jesus still faithfully went on from there to the cross to pay for sins like Judas, to pay for, for, for sins of people who betray him time and time again, and Judas couldn't see it. Peter, too, when he recognized his betrayal, he also runs out consumed by shame. But the difference in these two men is not the severity of their betrayal. It's not that one was more forgivable than the other. It's that when Jesus came and pursued Peter, Peter was able to recognize that his sin wasn't too big for the grace of God. Friends, sometimes we can think that it's, it's holy or righteous to wallow in our sin and shame. Like somehow that's, that's the penance we have to pay for our sin. But I want you to know that's actually not a righteous thing to do because it's a denial of the price that's been paid for your sin. When we wallow in our sin and we run from Jesus and run from his people... We're not doing anything but harming ourselves and rejecting the salvation that God's offered. Jesus pursued Peter, and Peter humbled himself to accept this forgiveness and restoration. So here's the closing encouragement. is If you are stuck in sin and shame, the only way out that God has provided for you, the only one that works, is not you trying to drum up enough self-righteousness of your own. It's not you trying to fix yourself. It's not you trying to undo your shame. The only way forward is for you to respond to the grace of Jesus that is coming out to you. Even at this very moment, consider this sermon, Jesus coming after you. Hear the grace of God. Turn and respond. Humble yourself to receive the forgiveness and the restoration that he has to offer. And the promise of the gospel, the promise that Jesus gives us here is that as you follow him, know that you will fail him again. Your assurance is never going to be in how good and sanctified you are. But over time, as you acknowledge your sin to Jesus again and again and again, and receive his love over and over and over again, a miraculous thing happens. You actually become like the very image of Jesus, the friend of sinners. His love will have a steady transforming effect on you like it did on Peter. That's how Jesus pursues betrayers like us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for, Lord, for the heart that is drawn to sinners like us. Lord, a heart that's actually not repelled by our sin, but one that's drawn to it. Lord, forgive us for the hiding that we do in our shame and in our sin. Help us to draw near. Help us to respond to your offer of grace, to be honest about our sin, and to find just an abundance of steadfast love, what you call loving kindness. 
that love that sees the worst in us and stays. Lord, help us to accept that the deepest parts of who we are. Free us from our shame and put us back on the path that you have for us. Path to be used in your kingdom by your grace for your glory. We pray it in your name. Amen.